Well, take your Bibles this morning, open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. As we continue in our series, The Advent of Glory, today we'll be reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, but we'll be focusing specifically on verse 14 uh, for the sermon. And today we talk about the glory of the incarnation. Now, maybe that's a word you've never heard before because it's a theological word, but just so you know, incarnation means Jesus coming in the flesh, in coming in, and then carnation, the same word, root word, from which we get carnivore, a flesh eater. So coming in the flesh, the glory of Jesus coming in the flesh. So John chapter 1, would you please stand in honor of God's word as it's read? And before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. John chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Amen. You may be seated. Are we still stunned by God's coming? Still staggered by the event? Does Christmas still spawn the same speechless wonder it did 2,000 years ago? Writes Max Lucado. He goes on to say, Something just happened to me that has me concerned that the pace of the holidays may be overshadowing the purpose of the holidays. I saw a manger in a mall. Correct that. I barely saw a manger in a mall. I almost didn't see it. I was in a hurry. Guests coming, Santa dropping in, sermons to be prepared, services to be planned, presents to be purchased. The crush of things was so great that the crash of Christ was almost ignored that day. I nearly missed it. And had it not been for a child and his father, I would have. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw them. The little boy, three, maybe four years old, in jeans and high tops, staring at the in-manger's infant, the father in a baseball hat and work clothes looking over his son's shoulder, gesturing first at Joseph, then at Mary, and then at the baby Jesus. 
He was telling the little fellow the story. And oh, the twinkle in the little boy's eyes, the wonder on his little face. He didn't speak, he just listened. And I didn't move, I just watched. What questions were filling this little boy's head? What sparked the amazement on his face? Was it the glory, the glory of Jesus? And why is it that out of a hundred or so of God's children, only two pause to consider his son? What is this December demon that steals our eyes, steals our tongues? Isn't this the season to pause and to behold the glory, the glory of the Christ child? Today, God invites us to pause, to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. As John says, the Word made flesh. And to discover that as we behold His glory, that we are called to have faith in His Son, Jesus, and to put our faith in Him. Well, as we read through this passage, you'll notice John's writing here sounds a little different maybe than other passages you've read in the gospel. Um, John talks, starts it off with phraseology that doesn't sound necessarily that familiar to us. If you go all the way back to verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He talks about light coming into the darkness, the darkness not understanding it. And you have to understand, John chapter 1 especially is known as, as his prologue. It is the prologue to the rest of the book. And he writes um, in a different style than the other gospel writers. Luke, for example, is a doctor, and he says that he worked very hard and he researched everything to give us an orderly account. But John writes for a different purpose. He writes that people may believe in Jesus, and he writes to reveal who Jesus is. And he does it not so much as a doctor making everything orderly and precise. In my mind, he's more like an artist, using metaphors of language to bring different ideas across. And so you see all these metaphors piled up here in the prologue, light and darkness, the Word and flesh. And those who believe are born as children of God. And you'll see it picked up even as he writes later in his gospel. You get to chapter 3, and he's the only one who tells the story of Nicodemus, and he uses terminology like, you have to be born again. And even Nicodemus is like, Jesus, what are you talking about born again? And so John has all these different metaphors to bring color and life to the image he's trying to write about when he writes about Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand that. And the first thing we have to tackle is what does he mean when he says, as we're going to focus in on verse 14, the Word became flesh. The Word. Now, simply stated, you could just say the Word is Jesus Christ. And you could take out that term and just say Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But he uses that term on purpose. It may be lost to us in our modern culture, but in the ancient culture, that terminology had a lot of meaning to those who would read his work. Because in the ancient culture, remember, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, and the Gentile world was ruled by Rome, but was heavily influenced by the Greeks who had come before. And I'm not Greek, but I've heard of those Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle Socrates, those different names. And so you have all this Greek influence. And so they, you, they would talk about the word. Their, their word was, they said it in Greek, they would say the logos. And they talk about the logos or the reason behind the universe that created it and gave it existence. And so John takes this philosophical word that the Greeks had used and he brings it to say, you know what? The creator of the universe, the one who was there before all 
the universe existed is none other than the Word who is Jesus. And so he's tying Jesus to an idea that the Greeks knew. But it's also an idea that if they had a Jewish background and read his gospel, that the Jews would know as well. Because the Jews would talk about God's Word making known his will and revealing who he is. In fact, for example, you've probably, how many of you have heard of the Ten Commandments? Good number of you heard of the Ten Commandments. Did you know that in Hebrew it's the Ten Words? It's not commandments, it's words. The words that reveal the will of God. It's the ten words. And even the book of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through prophets. God's word came through prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. How does God communicate to us? And the Jews would say, well, in the past, he spoke through prophets. In the past, he revealed the law on Mount Sinai to Moses, what we call the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant. But how does God talk to us? And what we discover in the New Testament is it's through Jesus Christ. He is God's word. So both Greeks and Jews would have familiarity with the term that John uses here. And so he uses it on purpose. But if it's confusing to you, you can just say Jesus. Instead of saying the word became flesh, you can understand he's talking about Jesus. Jesus became flesh. And what we discover in this passage is Jesus' glory. And today we're going to see the glory of his coming, the glory of his person, and the glory of his character. So let's start off with the glory of Jesus coming. You'll notice in this little verse, verse 14, and there's a lot here, it says the word became flesh. Jesus, who we read about earlier, who was with God in the beginning, we often, sometimes you might think Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but you have to understand Jesus as a person has existed from all of time. You can go all the way back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you discover, according to John, Jesus was there. In fact, God the Father did his creating through the Son. Jesus has always existed, but he came in flesh about 2,000 years ago. But Jesus has always existed. But it says the glory of Jesus coming is first that he became flesh. When I read that, it made me think of an experience I had when I was just a young kid. I was probably only four or five years old. My parents were invited um, over to um, the Kyle's home. And my mom had worked for Mr. Kyle for a couple years as his secretary before I was born. And she decided to stay home and to, to rear children. And uh, they ended after uh, I was five. I think my sister had, she obviously must, she's three years younger than I am. So I'm assuming she, she came along and was there as well, although I don't remember her. But I remember going to Mr. Kyle's house, and he was an executive at Dow Chemical. And he, he was a millionaire in the early 1980s before there were as many millionaires as there are today. And he, they were a well to do family. And there we are, we're invited there for dinner. I don't remember dinner or any of that part of it. All I remember is that I must have gotten bored and had trouble sitting still because Mr. Kyle came up with an idea. He said, John, he said, I've got something new. And in the early 1980s, he had spent thousands of dollars to purchase what today we know as a VCR. For those of you who have lived long enough to remember that, before the age of DVD and then Blu-ray and now streaming, there was the age of VCR. And he had them when they first came out. 
before the general public could afford them, and they were in the thousands, he had one. And not only did he have a VCR, but he had a movie to play in his VCR. He had Superman. And I got to sit in front of the TV and watch the original Superman. Remember Christopher Reeve? And, uh, you know, and Lex Luthor's in there and, and the story. And when they were making the original Superman, at the same time they started filming on Superman 2. And if you happen to have seen that old movie of Superman 2, in Superman 2, uh, Lois Lane discovers who Superman, who Clark Kent really is. She discovers that Clark Kent, her co-worker at the Daily Planet in the newsroom, is Superman. And finally, they, they admit that they have feelings and love for one another, and Superman decides that if he's going to have a relationship with Lois Lane, he needs to become a human. He wants to live a human life. And so, he and Lois, they travel to the Fortress of Solitude back in the Arctic, where there's this like crystal room that Superman can go into, and he decides to expose himself to the red sunlight of Krypton, and the red sunlight takes away his Superman powers, and he becomes entirely human. There's no more x-ray vision. There's no more flying through the air. There's no more super strength. Everything gone human. Of course, everything is fine until they discover that there's three criminals from Krypton who happen to have survived and are now on their way to planet Earth to take over the world. And Superman discovers that when, as a human, he can't fight them. And so he has to head back to his fortress of solitude and to that crystal palace that he has there where he can find the green crystal that restores his powers. And you might be thinking, what does Superman have to do with Jesus and the incarnation? Well, I think a lot of people think of Jesus like they think of Superman. See, Superman, he was Superman who had come from Krypton and he had all of these powers, but for the sake of love, he laid them all aside and he ceased to be Superman. He became just human. And sometimes we think of Jesus in that way. We think, well, so you're telling, Jesus existed in heaven with the Father for all of eternity. That's right. And Jesus, it was through Jesus, through whom the Father created the entire world. That's what John says. For by him all things were created. And so when Jesus came and was born in the manger, sometimes you get the idea, so he gave up being God. He's no longer God, just like Clark Kent was no longer Superman after he exposed himself to the red sunlight of Krypton. But that's not true of Jesus. When Jesus was born in the manger, he didn't stop being divine. He didn't stop being God. Instead, he stayed entirely divine, and he became, the author says, flesh. So he went from 100% divine, he didn't get rid of that and then become 100% human. No, he's kept 100% divine and added to that now 100% humanity. And that's the glory of the Incarnation. Now, some people, actually back in John's day, the temptation was to go the opposite direction. It was to think that if Jesus was the Word, and the Greeks had this idea that this, this Word, this Logos, this reason that existed and created the world, that, that this supernatural side of things is so much greater than the physical side of things, they would never dream of the Word becoming flesh. They're like, why would any 
something that great want to become human? Humanity is, is lower, a lower level than, than what they would have thought of the Word being. And so their temptation was to think the Word looked like a human. The Word came and maybe he put on a costume like you do at, at Halloween. And he dressed up to look like a human, but he never really was. It, the idea was that when Jesus came, was born in the manger, sure, he looked like a baby, and he acted and cried like a baby, and I'm sure Mary changed diapers like any mom has to do on a baby, and do all of that stuff, but the thought was he only looked like a human. We know he wasn't really a human. In fact, John has to write First John about that, and his other letters deal with what is called docetism, and the argument that Jesus only appeared to be human. And that's why John writes, he came in the flesh. He didn't say he came as a man. He didn't say he came with a body. He says he came in the flesh. One scholar said it this way. John's trying to make it as graphic as he can. When Jesus came, the Son, the eternal Son of God, became meat. He became a piece of meat. Or maybe you think of it this way. The eternal Son of God became, as you might say at a funeral, he became dust to dust, ashes to ashes. He didn't give up divinity, but at the same time, he embraced 100% humanity. He didn't just appear to be human, he became human. And so, as I've said before in sermons, Jesus is the only 200% person, 100% divine, 100% human, two natures united in one person. And so, the glory of his coming is that he became flesh. Now, we read over those words, I guarantee you, we should, as God's people, ponder the mystery. There is no way we can understand, how can the eternal Son of God become human? He goes on to say, he became flesh and he dwelt among us, or he made his dwelling among us. Jesus came and dwelt among us. Those of you who lived in this area long enough, or you're close enough to Chicago, that uh, you may remember a story from 1981. And uh, I was too young to remember it at the time, but I heard about it afterwards, in which in the city of Chicago, they were having trouble with crime, with gangs, with drugs and violence. And there's an area of Chicago that I remember as a youngster of hearing about because my uncle lived there. And we would spend every Thanksgiving when I grew up driving to Chicago and eating Thanksgiving dinner with my uncle. And uh, that was just kind of tradition for many years when I was a youngster. And so I've always been around Chicago, and now my wife, her hometown is Chicago. And uh, so Chicago's like a, in some ways like a second home where we've always had family. But as a youngster, we would go there, and my parents would talk about the wor one of the worst places in Chicago back in the 1980s. It was called Cabrini Green. Any of you ever hear of Cabrini Green? Several of you. It became the most famous, probably in America, housing projects that was ever developed. They had 3,000 units, over 15,000 people living in poverty in there, and gangs in there, and that was the number they counted. They assumed the number was probably over 20,000 in those 3,000 units. But it was, it was one of the most dangerous places to be. In fact, they said at one point, Cabrini Green was owned by snipers. People would just sit at the window with their guns shooting at others going down the streets. Well, it got so bad that the mayor of Chicago came up with a plan. Her name was Mayor Jane Bryan, and Jane Bryan decided that to create a new image of the low-income housing 
and to try to bring help to the situation, she and her husband moved in to one of the units. She moved in there. It took some remodeling of the place to make sure there was one way in, one way out, so people couldn't sneak in the backside of her, of her unit. And uh, Mayor Brine um, obviously had uh, bodyguards, police, and everyone else to protect her as she lived there. And she had an extended stay there of three weeks. She went, she had terrible publicity for it. Um, whether that's deserved or not, I don't know. I don't know what was in her heart or in her desires. I can, you can read what the news had to say about it, but she was there for three weeks, and then after three weeks, moving into Cabrini-Green, she was gone. Now, amazingly, Cabrini-Green got so bad, they eventually tore it down after a heinous crime committed to a young 13-year-old girl. That the crime was so bad that the gangs came to the police and said, we will help you solve this. They were appalled. And eventually that led to the, the, the leveling of Cabrini Green, and now it's a high-end area. The, um, but she lasted three weeks. And here in the text it says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You want to know what amazes me about that? Is that Jesus didn't just come to earth and become a human and say, okay, I'm going to do this. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough because eventually he knows he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be nailed to that cross and he's going to die for our sins. But when those 33 years are over, uh, then it's done. And then I can go back home and I can move back out. But you know what Jesus never does? He never moves out. Because Jesus, when he determined to become human, he determined that for the rest of eternity, that the eternal Son of God, who existed in the perfect bliss of God, determined that he would be 100% human for the rest of eternity. Wow. He has not ceased to be human. When you get to the book of Acts, when he ascends into heaven, his body goes up to heaven, the resurrection body, and he is determined forever to unite himself to humanity. And you just sit and you think, wow. Jesus not only became human, but he has stayed human for the rest of eternity. And God has invited humanity into the Godhead. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And in doing that, he reveals his glory. Because that word dwell, it's the same word in the Old Testament, scholars tell us, for the word tabernacle. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. Have you ever heard the word tabernacle before from the Old Testament? Yeah. The tabernacle, remember that's the place where the Jews, when they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land, it was that portable tent that they would set up. That's what it says. Jesus became the tent. He tented among us. He became the place that in the Old Testament, the place of worship where the glory of God dwelt. And remember that all the different tribes of Israel camped all the way around on all the sides and God wanted to be in the middle of his people and his glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies, but only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And now, John tells us, now the glory of God, it's not in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And then eventually, remember, the glory of God settled on, on the temple. When they finally got into the promised land, and, and they settled Jerusalem as their capital, and Solomon built a temple, and the glory of God came down and filled the temple, and came into the Holy of Holies. But now, John says, now the glory of God has come and it dwells among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God living in the midst of humanity. In fact, Jesus claims that himself. 
he talks about his own body and says, if you just go a chapter later in chapter 2, verse 19, he tells the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, referring to the actual physical building in Jerusalem. Are you going to raise it in three days? And John says this, the temple he had spoken of was his body. The glory of God in a human person and to think that God, will, Jesus, will stay that human person for all of eternity. Wow. It's the glory of Jesus coming. Do you realize what a mystery Christmas is? What a mystery. The glory we also see of Jesus' person. He is, as the passage goes on to say, we see the, mystery, the glory of his person. For it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. With the glory of his person, first says, he is the one and only son. It says, now, in, some, in one way, God has many sons. John has said just earlier in this passage, all who believed in him, to, him he, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision, but children born of God. And so, in a sense, anyone who has faith in God through Jesus Christ is a child of God. He has many children. In the Old Testament, God sometimes will call Israel my child, my son. But there is only one. There is a one and only who is the eternal son of God who has a unique relationship to the Father that no one else can claim. We're adopted into the family, but he's the eternal one. And so, Jesus is the one and only. When we say that, we mean at least two things. One, it means this. He's the eternal son. It's not like Jesus was born someday and became the son. He is the eternal son of God. He's eternally been the son, and the Father has eternally been the Father. How... We can comprehend that? We can't. We just accept it because God's revealed it to us, that he is the eternal son. It also means that Jesus shares, as the one and only, he shares the divine essence of the Father. My wife gets frustrated sometimes because she says, all of our kids look like you. She says, there's none of me in any of them. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's funny to watch them as they grow up. Sometimes they do look more and more. I'm like, oh, poor Noah. I think the older he gets, the more he does look like me. It might be true. And, uh, and so we know what that's like on human terms, to look like a parent or to see a resemblance between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter. Sometimes it's a resemblance a different way. When I was a kid growing up, nobody thought I looked like my parents. They all thought I looked like my Uncle Jim in Chicago. And so they said, I, everybody said, you look like your Uncle Jim. And I grew up like that. And we resemble our parents. But Jesus, he resembles the Father eternally in that he shares the same essence. The Father is divine. The Son is divine. It's not about appearance. It is about the essence of who they are. They both share in divinity. And while you and I are, ad are adopted into the family of God through faith, you and I are 100% human. But Jesus is the one and only because he is eternal and he shares the divinity of the Father. And so when we put a little baby in a manger, do you ever just say, wow, there is so much more here that God is doing than meets the eye. 
than we can comprehend. So he is the one and only son. We see that as the glory of his person, but he is also from the Father. Because it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Now that's significant. Because he is from the Father, if we get to know Jesus, it means we get to know God. In fact, that's what the disciples later said. If you go all the way to John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And he says that, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the the Father. Why? Because Jesus, according to John 1, is from the Father. You get to know Jesus, you're getting to know God. He, that's also repeated in Hebrews 1.3, where it says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. It's significant that He's from the Father because people in that day wanted to know God, and if you want to know God, you can know Him by knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, because the Son reveals the Father. The He and the glory of His person reveals who God is. And then finally, we see the glory of Jesus' character. It goes on to say in verse 14, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. Now, no doubt, grace, that Jesus was gracious and he was kind. We see him meeting with sinners and extending forgiveness to them that when people repented, he extended the grace of God. No doubt, he's truth. He wasn't a liar. He spoke truth. He revealed the truth of God, the truth of God's will. But that little phrase, grace and truth, is interesting. One little tidbit about it, the word grace only shows up two times in John's gospel. For all the times Paul writes about it, John only writes about it twice, and it's both in chapter 1. He talks about truth a lot more. But grace and truth is the New Testament way of referring to the Old Testament covenant. Saying the God of the Old Testament, the God of loving kindness who reached out to Israel to create a relationship with them, has now reached out in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the character of God on display. And so for John, grace and truth, in fact, you you can see the Old Testament relationship because just a few verses later in verse 15, it says, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of grace, we have, there's the word grace again, the other repetition in John's gospel. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Notice this. He's tying it to the Old Testament. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the covenant was given on Mount Sinai. And God's people could have a relationship with him through keeping the law. But in the New Testament, we discover God's covenant is made through the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the revelation of the character of God and will offer himself in grace and truth for us and for the world. And so when we look at the baby of Bethlehem, we see the glory of Jesus coming in the flesh. We see the glory of Jesus' person. We see the glory of his character. But do you ever just wonder? I just wonder, all the people that lived back then, that got to meet Jesus, that got to hear him teach on the mountainside, that got to see him perform a miracle as he walked through a town like Jericho. Those who saw him crucified on the cross of Calvary and the crowd, the people that passed by on the road that day. 
Did they all see the glory? Why not? John says, in this person, the glory of God is revealed. I mean, it sure would have helped had it been like uh, the TV show my dad liked in the 90s, The Touched by an Angel. Um, there was a show called Touched by an Angel. My dad, remember the day of VCRs, we, had, we've, we finally got a VCR, and we had a VCR. He recorded every episode of that show. He liked that show. And throughout the entire, if you watched an episode, throughout the entire show, there's these three angels, and they interact with humans, but people don't, they don't realize who they are until the end of the show, until they reveal they're an angel. And when they reveal they're an angel, it's really nice, a spotlight. You, don't, you can't see the spotlight, but you could just see they, there's a light over above them, and it turns on, and they glow. It would have been nice, I guess, had Jesus glowed for the world to notice. It would have made it a lot easier because what amazes me is that for all the glory that John says is there is that people don't see it. We want to know why? Because it's wrapped in flesh. That's the amazing thing. The glory is in, has become flesh. And so the world doesn't see it unless, what John would say is, unless you have faith to see it. That's the only way you'd see the glory. And so John writes his whole gospel to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, a Bible teacher who recently passed away, uh, John Stott, he says you can take the first half of John's gospel is the revealing of Jesus' glory and the signs of his miracles. In fact, that's how John starts his gospel off. You get to chapter 2, if you keep reading, you'll get to chapter 2, the first miracle. He turns water into wine. You think, huh. That's, not, that's a, you know, a low-level miracle on the miracle scale. It's not raising somebody from the dead. It's not giving the blind their sight back. But he starts with that one. It's because it's a declaration of the incoming kingdom of God. And he starts there, and at the end of that miracle, it's amazing. He says this, chapter 2, verse 11 of John. This is the first of his miraculous signs. Notice it's a sign to point to the glory of Jesus that Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Stott goes on to say, when he fed 5,000, he revealed he was the bread of life. When he walked on water, he claimed to have authority over nature. When he gave sight to a man born blind, he came to, claimed to be the light of the world. And when he rose Lazarus from the dead, he told Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He said the whole first half of John's gospel is pointing towards the glory of Jesus through the miracles of Christ. He said, but the last part of the gospel is pointing to the glory of Jesus and the supreme demonstration of it. He says, that is the cross of Christ. And the world doesn't recognize it. Apart from faith, it looks like foolishness, Paul says. But the cross of Christ is the final glory of God revealed. In fact, Jesus says so himself in chapter 12. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, the hour referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. He repeats it again a few verses later when he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came into the hour. Father, glorify your name. And then in chapter 13, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. The cross reveals his glory. But you know what? The world doesn't see it if the world doesn't have faith. And so John gets to the end of his gospel. He starts it off saying, the word became flesh. Jesus became a human. And you should see the glory of God that became humanity. And, I'll tr- and he tries to show us all the way through it, and he gets to the end of his book. And at the end, he says, now I write these things to you 
that you may believe. I know a lot of you believe in Jesus. And for those of us who have faith in Christ, we must be mindful to not miss the glory. Because there is so much going on in the manger that when we stop and ponder it, we can't even comprehend. All we can do is stand in awe. There's enough in verse 14 of John chapter 1 to silence our mouths and to just sit there and to say, God, I don't understand it, but by grace, I believe it. But some of you today, you're here at church, you've, you've heard my theological sermon. I know John chapter 1 is a theological passage. I'm like, well, it's not going to be a highly practical one. It's not like go home and do this today. But it is practical for John because John says this. He says, if you will look at Jesus you will see the glory of God, but you'll only see it by faith. And he invites you to believe that Jesus isn't just a baby that shows up in a manger scene at Christmas time. That it isn't just billboards, but that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who wants to be your Savior. And he invites you to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the point. To believe that Jesus is the one and only God who wants to be your Savior. And so I invite you this Christmas. I love trees. I love the songs. I love the lights. I enjoy all of the, all of the different things that go with an American Christmas. But all you need at Christmas really is Jesus. And most of the world will miss it. But I, my prayer today is that if you have never asked Jesus to be your Savior, that today you would ask Him and that you would believe that He is the eternal, the one and only eternal Son of God who came to be your Savior. Because that's what Christmas is about. And maybe you say, well, how do I do that? In our tradition, we say, well, just... Be as simple as starting with a prayer and asking Jesus to be your Savior, confessing your sin to Him and asking Him to forgive you and to come into your life and to, be, to lead you and to guide you. Because He's alive today. He's alive in heaven and by the Holy Spirit, He is at work in our hearts and lives. In fact, if He brought you here today, it's because He is at work drawing you and revealing His glory to you today. And so, you may not know how to do that, I'm, when, as I close, I'm just going to close in a, what you might call a salvation prayer. And I just invite you, you can use your own words, but you can copy it. God isn't impressed by the words. He's impressed by Jesus Christ, His Son, who's our Savior. And I just ask you to do one thing. We're not going to do an altar call. We're going to sing and praise the Lord at the end and praise the glory of God. But if you ask Jesus to be your Savior, would you just let me know afterwards? I would love to follow up with you. And I'd just love to celebrate with you if you've done that. So would you bow your heads with me? And if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you to pray this prayer. Say something like this. Dear Jesus, today I've learned that you are the eternal Son of God, that you came to be the Savior of the world. And today, for the first time, I realize I need to ask you to be my Savior. 
So would you forgive me of my sins? Would you come into my life and be my Savior? And would you lead and guide me for the rest of eternity? Thank you for loving me enough to come in the flesh and to die on a cross and to rise from the dead. Teach me to love you more now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.